Welcome to Tiffle Waffle with Troy and Steve. All right, we're going to waffle about the the English that the teacher speaks, because we're all English teachers and we speak English, hopefully. But do we speak the same English? So you're talking about the difference between British, American, Australian. Yeah, obviously the big one is: uh, do you speak American English or do you speak British English? Which for for both of us being teacher trainers, we encounter quite a lot of that. We have students in the classroom who say, oh, "Yes, but he speaks American English. That's not real English anyway." You know, and of course, it's a joke. It's a bit tongue in cheek. But teachers do speak different English. This this issue, <clears throat> I've been exempt from all my life because I speak South African English, and I, everybody knows we don't speak English properly anyway. Well, but uh, I speak Australian English, which, I mean, is that even English, or is it that some dialect of English almost? You, you've, um, over the years, you've neutralised a lot of your accent, and you've eliminated a lot of the Australian idiosyncrasies from the way that you speak. But haven't you done that as well? I, I, I think I sound pretty South African still. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't think you sound that South African. So let's go back to this question. Are we talking about the lexical choices? Are we talking about the pronunciation? Uh, are we talking about... Because the grammar doesn't really change that much, does it? Um, uh, slightly, but not hugely. Okay, haven't got and don't have. And yeah, and uh, little things where... Things might be considered incorrect in some places, like the, the American use of conditionals is quite often very strange easy one for people to look at if they look at a, a map of the US and they Google uh, which areas call it soda, which call it pop. And I think one part actually calls it uh, Coca-Cola. You know, it doesn't matter if it's Fanta or Diet Sprite, the, the universal term is Coca-Cola. The same with Pale and Bucket. I think, I think the North Americans use a slightly different, we'll use one in, in the South American, the South um, Whatever. <laughs> the Southern Northern Americans. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so there's the lexical option part. Yeah. Uh, so sometimes I've run across things where it turns out the thing that I think it's called, uh, that's not what it's more, I can't say universally, but most commonly would be better than universally used. And uh, something like gumboots which is not a universal thing. Uh, and then, well, what do you go for? Do you call them... Wellingtons. Or galoshes. Um, all right, so the, the lexical choice is one issue, but I, don't, uh, I mean, in my opinion, we say to the students, this is what I say, or this is how, what I call it, or this is what we call it in South Africa. Okay, but then are we teaching our students to speak to people from our hometown? Okay, so this creeps into the issue of World Englishes. Um, yep. uh, the question of world Englishes, the world, the question that world Englishes asks is, um, what is English? Because it isn't any one thing; it's a whole conglomeration of slightly different things, and each individual one is as good as any of the others. So, a Singaporean saying "canla" is as acceptable as somebody going, "Yes, you may," in in a different context, because those are different versions of English that are utilized in. Um, and that would imply that any of those world Englishes are English. 
Okay, so if we're looking at, at it that way, then the goal of teaching English would just be mutual intelligibility. I can understand you, you can understand me, and it's fine, right? Yeah, but I, I, I actually have some problems with that. Okay, your problems being? Um, when, when you're going to learn how to fix a car, you don't want to learn just any old way of fixing the car. You want to learn the correct way, especially if you're paying for to learn that thing. If, if you're going in to learn uh, a language, then obviously you'd like to learn the, the most, well, you'd like to learn a correct version of it, whatever correct means. And we can argue that Singaporean English isn't, is as correct as British English. But I think that the students have the, have the desire to learn a version of English that they would consider to be correct. Okay, now, surprisingly enough, uh, one thing that comes up all the time and yet continues to be a non-issue is the American-British thing. Sometimes my students say, oh, is that American or is that British? And sometimes I point out to them, okay, well, I'll show you it in British English or American English because they're more advanced learners. And they always just go, uh-huh. Uh, they take it as kind of a, a non-issue. Yeah. Uh-huh, okay, fine. And they're okay with the fact that there are, to them, two Englishes. Of course, there are more than two, but to them, there are two Englishes. <laughs> All right, we've been joined by a cat, so if you hear some purring, we have a, a third host to put in their opinion. All right, so uh, my students anyway, they're, they're very accepting of the whole there are two Englishes. They don't find it to be a big problem. Okay, but when we get into the whole gumboots, galoshes, Wellington boots, that's now not two that's multiple Englishes. Even within American English, there's multiple Englishes. Yeah. I think um, there, there are some very cool studies on this kind of stuff where I think it was five American Englishes uh, and they split it up both by pronunciation, uh, by lexical choice, and also by um, some specific grammar structures that were only used or acceptable in those areas. What makes the specific grammar and lexical choices interesting is that's pretty much the same definition as slang. Slang is language that's only either used or understood by a subgroup. And it doesn't matter what the subgroup is. Uh, culture, age, class, region, gender, uh, race, it doesn't matter. It's, it's slang by definition is language used by a subgroup which then kind of makes all these Englishes slang. Which brings us back to the question of which one is English? Yeah, which one is English? Or which are one they all English? I mean, the, the idea of a, a world English is where everybody is acceptable suits me because as a South African, because I don't speak American English or British, British English necessarily, um, having my version of English verified or ratified by um, a world English's paradigm is, is kind of cool. And um, being able to say, well, this is what I say in South Africa, and if you want to find out the American version, okay. go, go ahead. All right, so we, we can get around it that way. We say, okay, this is my English that I use. And a lot of the time, though, I find myself deliberately not introducing some English that I, not that I use now, because that's faded away quite a lot, but the English that I used growing up, I, I've changed quite a bit of it. Um, some of them are simple things like, 
Uh, I tend to say sofa instead of couch, uh, even though... Yeah, me too. I say sitting room instead of lounge, uh, which, which we wouldn't say in South Africa, but, but that's become more common. Certainly, I wouldn't say robot, because that's our word for traffic light, uh, and that's, yeah. Yeah, that's very slangy. Okay. All right, so uh, actually, robot, there's a great example. Where robot is so regional. For those of you who, who don't know, yes, traffic lights are called robots in South Africa, which yeah. makes no sense to anyone else yeah, in the right. world. Turn right to the second robot. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good example of where I think it is the teacher's job to realise that they're saying something that very much, I would say, counts as slang. It shows a regional English, but it's so it it's that stronger definition of slang where it's not just used by it's also only understood by a certain group of people. So yeah, I think it is our job to try to at least in the beginning when we're introducing it as a new term. The new term that we introduce is the most universal, whether or not that's actually our English or not, and that strangely contributes to the whole. I don't really sound that Australian anymore. Well, to an Australian, they I don't sound Australian. In fact, a lot of them go, where are you from? Mm. Oh, you're from England, right? And I'm sure that you have a similar thing to South Africans. You don't sound that South African anymore. I, I, I'm starting to be mistaken for a Kiwi. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, yes, it's our job. If we're saying something that's so specifically regional, that's only understood, well, we have to find the more generic term for that language. Okay, but you did say in the beginning that there were two areas, uh, lexical choice and pronunciation. Yeah. Okay. Pronunciation so. is a little bit more fuzzy because how we speak, how we pronounce things, um, I think is a, a slightly, for me, I, I can't access my pronunciation as, as easily as I can access my lexical choices. Okay, so let's uh, take a nice simple example. I, I met your sister and she asked if you had a, uh, what was it, a backgammon table. A backgammon table. A backgammon board. You've got mm. a backgammon board. Mm. Which to me as a, as a language teacher, I, I pick up on things like that constantly. I do like languages and I love English. And so I hear those things immediately, and I hear them as being quite distinct. For most of the world, it would be a backgammon table. The stress, the emphasis is on the first syllable, the back. back. It's backgammon. Mm. Um, but for your sister and... It was for, backgammon. It's a backgammon table. <laughs> All right, this gets into the whole mutual intelligibility argument. I certainly understood exactly what she was saying. There was no miscommunication going on. But to me, that still sounds like a, a non-standard English, a, an, an English, a regional English, as opposed to English, English. Um, which is certainly also true of the English that I, to a small degree, still speak, but uh, to a, a much larger degree, the, the English that I grew up speaking. And I have weeded out quite a lot of that. Some were just sounds. Okay, I don't say ah anymore. I say ah. Um, are we at risk when we weed out our idiosyncratic regionality of becoming autom automatons, automatons, um, <laughs> automatons? <laughs> yeah, who who are are speaking a standard form of a language without any character. 
I'm sure what it's, uh, I don't know. When we're teaching our students, is that, are we trying to teach them our character? Shouldn't they be having their own? That's a good point. If we are the nice, generic, okay, here's, here's your beginning, here's your generic English. What you do with your English is what you do. And certainly the English that I speak when I'm chatting with my father, or maybe even chatting with you, it, that's not exactly the same English that I have in class. All right, let's push this boundary a little bit further and say, okay, if, we, if we're aiming for standard English, or standard English is what we want in the classroom, what does that do to the Identity. 80%? No, to the 80% of the teachers who are not native speaking teachers, not English native speakers. And, and here I'm thinking about um, uh, the large number of Cambodian and Thai teachers that I know, okay. the Chinese teachers. Um, Choi, who does our outro for this um, yeah, podcast, sure. his English is very good, but of course he has a very strong Cambodian accent and he might be unaware of how strong it is. He just speaks that way. He's a very good teacher and the students love him. Um, there's no ways he can speak a standard form. He, Isn't there? Certainly from a pronunciation perspective, no, I don't think so. I don't think he... It would take him a <coughs> lot of work to, to, to get his accent. And I don't think that would be his goal as, a, as an individual. I don't think he wants to sound like a native speaker. Okay, what about the sounds that make him difficult to understand? I'm not talking about his accent as a whole, his pronunciation as a whole, but I'm sure there are certainly a couple of sounds, maybe a, a, well, dip, a diphthong here or there. Yeah, sure. In Cambodia, it doesn't have an eh like we have for bed. So you can't distinguish when a Cambodian uh, uses bed or bed. Okay. Um, that that pair is, is just pronounced as one... So, but that very seldom leads to any misunderstanding because even if they do say an air as an air, there's contextual clues that'll tell you what it, what word it is that they're trying to. So, uh, I can't think is of an it, example. Isn't that hindering his communication though? With who? Uh, okay, so he's speaking, he's speaking with you. Uh, do you find yourself being more attentive like having to put in the extra mental energy to comprehend his message? Personally, no, because I think I, I spend so much time around non-native speaking people, teachers and students, that I think I'm, um, I'm attuned to that. Maybe a, a person who's just arrived in Cambodia who hasn't tuned into a Cambodian accent might have a problem, but he's speaking to people like me, there's no problem. He's speaking to his students... There's no problem. problem. Um, He's speaking to other Cambodian teachers in English. When that happens, there's no problem. So I would say no. He's probably not having a lot of problems at all. And in general, his English is, comparatively speaking, pretty good. He has a good command of the language. He's got a great lexical uh, repertoire. Um, He probably wouldn't be able to get up and make a speech in front of an audience in English. Surely, but purely as a result of nerves, not because of his English, I, I think. But, uh, you know, I think that that would be a big challenge for him. But no, I don't think he does have any problems. Um, and, um, I mean, if we if we have a look at other non-natives that I know, um, your wife, uh, there's no problem with her English as a tie. Okay. Um, you mean her pronunciation? Her pronunciation, okay. yeah. She can make her meaning okay. clear, yeah. 
Uh, these people are, are uh, there are many, many more non-native speakers teaching English than there are native speaking. And also, I mean, nowadays at least, it's much more likely that our students are going to be trying to converse with other non-natives. Rather than with natives. Yeah. So our, our regional differences as teachers is probably um, not as important as it might initially seem. Okay, so let's take a, a, an example. I'm a new teacher and I'm Australian. This is one of those true story moments. And I said the word, I said a word to my students and they did not understand. This is like a robot story from South Africa, right? Uh, no, this was just pure <laughs> pronunciation. It okay. wasn't like... Oh, right, okay. Uh, I said, uh, I had an Australian accent, which I can't actually mimic properly anymore because it's gone so far, but I said, imagine you're in your house mm. and they didn't know what a house was and I had to draw a house on the whiteboard. <laughs> and I said, see this one? It's a house. And I heard them mimicking me back. They went, oh, house, house, house. And I, I mean, to a large degree, I just did not know that my pronunciation of that particular sound, the owl sound in English, was that strong. But I certainly changed it because I personally think that I'm supposed to be the model for the classroom. And I can't teach my students a sound that is only used where I'm from. That sound does not exist outside of Australian English. And in fact, two degrees, it's only you know, some regions of Australia that do it that, that it's that extreme, that sound. So uh, this reminds me of a story. We were doing a, a teaching workshop with, a, with a, a group of teachers at one of the schools. And one of the teachers was South African. And they were playing a game where they had to say a word. And, um, and one, the South African teacher said, Bog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bog. And none of the other teachers could figure out what it is that she was saying. Um, she was actually saying park, but she couldn't say park. She was saying it with this... Bog. 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 She was an Afrikaans speaker. <laughs> yeah, Afrikaans. Um, and she was very embarrassed about the fact that nobody could understand her pronunciation of park. Um. <laughs> well, then is it her job to learn to say ah and to stop doing that, uh, well, it's not a P or a B, that, yeah. that in-between sound that Afrikaans had that English doesn't? Sound and I think it's those those moments of, of miscommunication like that that do end up neutralizing our accent for us because okay. um you, you saying house to the class and and I as a South African I'd go yeah it's in my house and I might have the same problem okay um and then we go okay well that's not when when we're drilling that language and we hear it back coming back because our pronunciation to us to us doesn't sound like that yeah. uh, when it comes back at us we go oops I shouldn't say it like that okay so if we're going to teach pronunciation <laughs> uh, drill and model pronunciation with our students then yeah we do have to be more attentive mm. I don't know if you remember we had uh, I, uh, two South African girls on the course and the students couldn't quite understand her, her accent they couldn't guess what she was saying but to me sitting at the back she kept on saying Okay, so this is some... Bob likes ice cream. He loves ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. Ice cream. Yeah. Now, from context, I could guess that she was saying ice cream. But it certainly interrupted the communication because I started paying attention more to her accent than what the message yeah, was. Yeah, but, but, I mean, as, an, as another native speaker, you're going, okay, that sounds very much like... Ask cream. Um, ask cream. Yeah, that yes. sounds very much like a medical uh, uh, hemorrhoid treatment. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but the students might not have gone made that leap simply because they were in the context rather okay. than in the... Uh, and maybe they wouldn't even know what ice cream is. Quite, uh, quite possibly, yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so there are times when I, I, I do believe, as an, as a, and it's native or non-native, because I, I think in, uh, in a way, non-natives are more attentive of the fact that they, they do make pronunciation and grammar errors. Whereas native speakers are less aware and quite often very defensive also. When, you, when a student points out to them, they say, no, I don't sound like that, I, yeah. I don't say that. And sometimes it's purely, they, they are unaware. Um, we had uh, an Irish chap on the course who was shocked to find out that 8-A-T-E and 8-E-I-G-H-T were the exact same sound. He was what really? They're completely different. How can they be the same? And that wasn't an arrogance thing. It was purely he was not aware that that existed outside of outside of uh, Northern Ireland. I think it was. Okay. All right. So yes, as a teacher, I think you should be doing some work. Uh, and as a native teacher, I think you should be very attentive to to how it comes back. Right. Now I'm going to kind of contradict myself a bit. Uh, when I was in my early days of teaching, I'd say, uh, let's say three or four years in, I read some very interesting things about how communication, how easy it is to communicate and the things that hold back non-native speakers. And the stuff that I read basically indicated that to a non-teacher, just to another native speaker, let's say you're, you're from London, if your accent, not your accent, if your pronunci pronunciation is quite standard, communication is quite easy, that native speaker can follow you quite easily. Uh, and, to take it a step further, those native speakers did not, were not able to pick up or rate how good or bad that speaker's English was if their pronunciation was clear. So they could speak in very clear English, but not necessarily very good English in terms of grammar, and completely get away with it. And the mistakes. Yeah, well, this is a so This is social linguistic question. Yeah, absolutely. If you sound, if you sound, if you're speaking with the right kind of accent, people mistake you for a a, and, a and, very well educated, yeah. intelligent person. So he, in in these studies, they showed the same thing over and over again. Uh, perfect grammar and very non-standard or very regional pronunciation, the grammar mistakes are much more apparent. Uh, the native speaker could pick up on all the grammar mistakes they made. Uh, reasonably natural English, and I'm just going to call it natural English, okay. it's no specific region, but reasonably natural English, the native speakers would not pick up on it and they found communication much easier and would rate those people as, uh, as having a, a higher standard of English. So that's a very strong argument for... Standard English. Standard English, and for the teacher to be a very neutral model of English. Okay, that's great. I was reading stuff at least 10 years ago, yeah. and the studies I was reading were probably 10 to 15 years old at least at that point. Yeah. The trend towards uh, ELF, English as a lingua franca, um, is becoming, I wouldn't say it's becoming more apparent, it's always been there. Um, but is becoming much more acknowledged as uh, one of the main functions of learning English. I'm learning English because I'm Thai, 
and my company does business with uh, Swedes, Swedes mm-hmm. and the only language we have in common is English. So that's the one that we're going to learn. I, I haven't yet been able to find any good studies on the effect of pronunciation versus grammar when it's ELF as opposed to when it's native to non-native and, and vice versa. I'm quite interested to know where it goes. Um, one of our colleagues recently said to me, I, I think this whole thing where we focus on the schwa sound in English, maybe we can just let go of that because most non-natives don't do it. And they're, if, they're doing it, if they're not doing it with other non-natives who are not doing it, then actually us, the native speakers, we're the outsiders, we're the exception, not the norm, if that's the language. That is that is the the question is if uh, um, with ELF, if we're acknowledging that non-native to non-native communication is how things are moving forward, then English is no longer the realm of the English speaker at all, actually. Um, but but I think that that's a spurious argument because an English teacher still has to teach something, something. and standard English is the thing that we should aim to teach. I think that this is this is where this podcast is going now, um, and. If you speak, if you speak, uh, some sort of non-standard form, and the students are picking up on that, and you, that's not what you want to try and teach. Then you should try and eliminate that to make your, your speech more standard, and that makes you. Uh, a model for, some sort of English that you'd like to teach the students, and I mean I don't think it's just about teaching English to beginners, or, or if you're a businessman and you've got to write a letter it's not a pronunciation question, then it is a grammar and lexical choice thing. And then, yes, you do want to sound, you do want to use good English, whatever good means, because um, people rate you and your business by how you present through your language. Sure, absolutely. And if you're an academic and you've got to write a paper and you're uh, Russian and you want your, your paper to get read elsewhere, you're going to have to publish it in English, and that means that your English has to be fairly good. Um, and... Poor English. I think that there, there, there are arguments, and there's evidence to, to, there's evidence that poor English doesn't necessarily lead to detriment. Is not detrimental to your publication possibilities, but it certainly doesn't present well if you if you submit a document and it's full of um, language, grammar errors you know, and, and language issues. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, so I guess we just continue to be the very bland, standard, neutral English where when I'm in Australia, people think I'm from England, and when I'm in uh, Thailand, people will eventually say, so where are you from then? But I have to stand with my with my original argument, say that we, we are who we are, and our, our pronunciation is part of our character and identity, and, and as a South African teacher, I, I carry that into the classroom and I tell the students, well, that's what I say. Um, it's wrong necessarily by by American standards possibly, but it's the way I say it. And um, I have never had a student walk out of my classroom because I'm saying something with a non-American accent. But I have lost a job because I wasn't an American English speaker. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. In Korea at the time that I was applying for jobs, there they only took American Americans. But that that was judged by the passport. Okay. Not, not by the accent, but their argument was that they want American pronunciation. So, um, but they weren't able to rate that 
I mean, were there people in the school who were doing the hiring that could actually tell if somebody had no, I one know. of the, what was it, five or seven American <laughs> Englishes? No, I just had the wrong passport. So, <laughs> okay, if you were an... If you spoke French Creole and yet had only emigrated and, and been in, in the US for five years and actually were, were Ukrainian by birth and, and you in were high possibly, school. You were possibly okay. But, ha- but presumably, if you, oh, yeah, no, I don't know, at, at that stage, yes. But since then, um, South Africans, I know, have got jobs in Korea. So obviously the American accent thing didn't rub off on the... Korean students in the way that they were hoping it would. Okay. <laughs> right, thanks for listening again today. All right, thanks, guys. Playful Waffle is proudly brought to you by the Nonstop Wafflers. Tor and Steve, for any questions, comments, complaints, or queries, you can email tefalwaffle at gmail.com or visit www.tefalwaffle.com. <laughs>